Today, we are talking about God stopping up the Jordan River so his people could cross over into the promised land. This is a miracle. And if you were an Israelite living in that day and you witnessed this great display of God's might, uh, it would have changed you. It would have changed your uh, perception of reality, your understanding of your God and yourself it would have been one of these life-altering experiences. And, and you know what God wants to do in your heart and mine heart today as we reread this uh, faithful witness of God's mighty acts on our behalf in times past? By His Holy Spirit and by faith, He wants us to enter into this story so that it becomes first-hand uh, experiential knowledge for us. That's what the Spirit of God does when we engage with the Bible by faith. It becomes part of our experience. Unlike other stories we hear, and we hear tons of stories, the Bible stories are, are um, true stories about our God that when we enter into them, they shape our perception of reality and they shape our understanding of God and ourselves and uh, the enemies that we face in life. So be prepared for God to reveal himself afresh to you as a God of great power. And so one who fights for you and you can be, you're safe in his care. So Joshua chapter 3. Turn, please, in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. And I'm going to be slowly walking through the text. In fact, we won't be done reading the story until the sermon is done. So we'll be in this for a while. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. Joshua is the leader of the Israelites. He took over from Moses. Uh, God appointed him the leader of his people. Uh, the Israelites have been camped out at Shittim ever since they conquered the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan River with their two kings, Sihon and Og. So they've been there for a while. And now God says, move. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. The Jordan River was the, the last great obstacle between the Israelites and the land that God had promised their ancestor, Abraham, the promised land. Verse 2, at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. These are the men that had been appointed when Moses was leader. Moses uh, had to learn to delegate. And Exodus chapter 18 uh, records that story of uh, how Moses' father-in-law Jethro encouraged him to delegate authority, and so they established officials. But these officials are not commanding the people on their own authority. They are acting uh, on behalf of Joshua. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. The Ark of the Covenant uh, contained the Ten Commandments, the staff of Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was the first priest, and some manna. God had fed his people with manna. And the Ark of the Covenant was a gilded box. 
and it represents, represented the presence of God in, uh, with His people. And so what the officials are saying is when you see the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant, uh, get ready to follow them. The Levites, the, uh, one of the 12 tri tribes of Israel was the tribe of Levi. And the Levites were not given any land. Their inheritance was to serve the Lord. They mediated the relationship between God and His people. They were in charge of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and the temple and, at the, and the Ark of the Covenant. So when you see God on the move, essentially, get ready to move. Verse 4, yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. That's about 1,000 yards, 10 football fields. Quite a distance. Do not come near it. Now, why were the Israelites instructed, commanded, to not come near the Ark of the Covenant? Well, maybe because God is holy and they're not, and to get too close to a holy God when you're full of sin is very dangerous. We saw that at Mount Sinai. God said, I'm going to show up on the mountain in power. Don't let the people come too close to the mountain lest they die. Uzzah, many years later, uh, which in an effort, good faith effort in my opinion, I mean, the Ark of the Covenant is being carried on a wagon at that time, and the road gets bumpy and the ark starts to, looks like it's going to fall off the wagon and Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the ark and the anger of the Lord burned against him and he was struck dead. So it could be that God says, keep your distance because you're sinful people and I'm a holy God. It's dangerous for you to get too close. Praise God for Jesus who has uh, taken away our sin. As far as the east is from the west and now he says we may with confidence draw near to God. But actually, that's not the reason given here in the text. In the text, we read this, Don't come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you've not passed this way before. Huh. I think what he's saying is, uh, let God be the clear leader. You're not, you're not on a journey together. God's out front leading, because remember where the ark is, there's, that represents the presence of God. God's out front, He's leading, you're a follower, remain a follower. And that's an important spiritual principle. If you don't want to get lost spiritually, follow God's lead. And very practical application, the Bible is the Word of God, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has revealed His leadership in the Scriptures. And how many times have I encountered people who say, well, there are parts of the Bible I take issue with, and uh, parts of the Bible I don't think I believe, I don't think I want to, you know, follow that. Well, uh, that's you not letting God be the leader. And whenever you begin to second guess or take the lead, uh, and you'll wind up getting lost spiritually. That's why we have other religions and all kinds of um, aberrant types of Christianity. So we need to let God be the clear spiritual leader in our life. That's why Christians are often referred to as followers of Jesus, disciples. He's the master. He, we, we are the learners. 
Then Joshua said to the people, verse 5, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate. Uh, sanctify yourselves. Tomorrow needs to be set apart as a special day, and you need to get ready for it. God's going to do something special in your midst. And if you go back to Sinai, that, that sanctification process included washing their clothes, ritualistic bathing, abstaining from sexual relations, eating certain foods, ritualistic preparation. And today, we are sanctified by repenting of our sins and putting our faith in God's Son, Jesus. And He sanctifies us, praise God. Uh, and it might be a bit of a stretch, but I can't help but read this and think, you know what, we probably could do a better job of preparing ourselves to meet with God uh, on Sunday. Uh, how many times have I uh, rushed helter-skelter to church with my mind on everything else but worshiping the Lord? Uh, getting here late even. I can't do that now when I'm the pastor, but you guys do it. <laughs> and maybe, maybe we can do a better job consecrating this day where when two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of you, a time when we're going to meet with God in a special way. Maybe we should get here a little early, maybe pray in our car and just acknowledge uh, with some reverence that we're about to encounter the living God who, who has laid his life down on our behalf. Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. That word wonders is the closest Old Testament word to what we today refer to as miracles. God's going to do a miracle among you tomorrow. And what's a miracle? A miracle is when God suspends the laws of nature in order to act on our behalf. And um, it's, something, it's something you can't explain any other way than God acted. Uh, there's no natural explanation for it. Now, I think it is a miracle when someone uh, comes to the realization that they're on the wrong path and they repent and they change. I just think it's a miracle when God works in people's hearts. And it is. It, it's, it's the supernatural work of God in people's hearts. But, but this kind of a miracle is, um, is altering the laws of nature. It's messing with the physical world. And God does not do that very often. In fact, one of the reasons in chapter 4, God says, erect a memorial of 12 stones so that you can tell future generations of what I did is because God doesn't do this every other week, right? Uh, these big miracles where God steps in and supersedes the laws of nature do happen, and they're recorded in the Bible when they do, but they don't happen all that often. Typically, it's around big moments in salvation, history, this being one of those. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel so that you may know that as I was with Moses, so that they may know that as I was with, with Moses, so I will be with you. Uh, this text identifies a number of purposes for the miracle. And uh, one of the purposes 
is so that the Israelites will know that God is with Joshua just like he was with Moses. Uh, God performed through Moses multiple miracles. The ten plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Dead Sea, you know, Pharaoh's army gets destroyed, and the people were absolutely convinced that God was with Moses. Well, he got a new leader of the people of God, and uh, there's lots of questions. Is God with Joshua in the way that he was with Moses? God's people want to know that their leaders walk with God. And so God says, uh, through this miracle, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to exalt you in the eyes of the Israelites so that they'll know I'm with you just like I was with Moses. And what does that do? It makes it a lot easier for the Israelites to follow Joshua's leadership. Now, in the church, the people of God rightfully desire that their leaders walk with the Lord. Uh, you don't care so much if your pastor is, you know, brilliant, super administratively skilled. These are all nice things, loquacious. But you want to make sure I, the elders, the other pastors, James, Brian, you want to know that we're walking with the Lord. There's not some giant hidden sin that's going to blow up and cause a big scandal and all of a sudden people's uh, uh, faith in the church is, is shipwrecked. Right? You want leaders who walk with God. And, and you should insist on that. And that's right. Verse 8. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. Quote, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. By the way, there's a pattern throughout this story in which God talks to Joshua. Joshua then turns around and talks to the Israelites. The Israelites obey Joshua, thereby obeying God. That is not the leadership uh, role that I have. Even sometimes I wish, no. Uh, I do not pretend to speak for God except for when I am re-speaking the words of God from the Bible. And you are to be like the Bereans, and you're to evaluate everything that, uh, you know, that is being said from the pulpit and make sure it matches up with the Word of God. But when you are convinced that what I'm saying is, in fact, what God is saying, then it is authoritative and you must obey it, right? You're not obeying me, you're obeying God, and He chooses to re-speak His Word to the church through preachers. Verse 9, and Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Second pur purpose of the miracle is to encourage the people of God. And there are three things that, that, that the people are going to learn through this great miracle. Number one, their God is the living God. Unlike the false dead gods of the idol-worshipping nations they're about to go conquer. Uh, there was a religious worldview that was dominant in that day, and it was that there were many gods, and uh, nations flourished depending on the strength of their God. 
So here are the Israelites. They're about to enter into the promised land, and some of those nations have cities with high walls, and their people are big and tall and wield big swords and big spears. And so if you're an Israelite, you could be asking in your heart and mind, hmm, how powerful are their gods, and will our God be able to overcome? And so one of the things that's going to happen through this stopping up the Jordan River is the people of God will, will come to know that their God is the living God, unlike the others, and that He's among you. Uh, he's not distant. He is with you, and He will without fail drive out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. Oh, by the way, that list of six nations is not exhaustive. Joshua, I believe, talks about nine overall, but it's a, it's a representative list of the people that are going to be displaced. And so the people of God uh, are encouraged by reminders that God is mighty, He's with us, He fights for us. By the way, preaching, and James and I talk about this uh, quite a bit, that Preaching is, in, should include teaching. You should learn things. I'm not sure that I ever teach my mom and dad anything new, but, but you should learn things. But preaching is often a, a restirring of what you already know. It's a reminder. We, we have to be reminded and reminded and reminded. And it's amazing just how sitting here and being reminded of, of the basic truths that God is all-powerful, He's with you, He will fight for you, can and tra- transform your week and, and your state of mind. We just need, we need to be reminded of these important truths. Verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Hear that? The ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each man a tribe. Those guys are not talked about again until chapter 4, and James, Pastor James is going to preach uh, on chapter 4 next week, and you'll see what they were, they were get up to. Verse 13, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Now, in the early 1900s, there was a mudslide that stopped up for a short time the Jordan River. And people have pointed that out and said, aha, well, that's what happened. It was just a natural phenomenon that the Israelites took advantage of and then chalked up to the power of their God. But what you need to see here is that Joshua, the night before, says what will happen, and when it will happen. He says, tomorrow, when the moment that the priest's feet touch the water, the waters will begin to stand up. So it wasn't a natural phenomenon that the people of God just capitalized on. Uh, There is a clear prediction. Verse 14, so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. I want to pause there and just note how much faith that took. The Jordan River is still flowing. 
and the people get up and they set out to cross the Jordan. The obstacle is still there. It has not been taken away, but the people are stepping out in faith. And, and they're having to trust that, that what Joshua said God was going to do, God was going to do. And so this is a different generation than mom and dad's who shrank back in fear 40 years earlier. And I think that that generation learned its lesson and that it did a good job passing on to the children, learn from our mistakes. We blew it. When God gave us a chance to take the promised land, we shrunk back in fear. Uh, we didn't act in faith. And we want, ended up wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness, and we could have been across the river over there in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. When you get the opportunity, because God's going to give you a chance, when, when you get the opportunity, don't do what we did. Learn from our mistake. Trust God. Be strong and courageous, and go take that land. And I think the people have learned that. And so, you know what, parents? It's great to be able to teach our kids from our own good example. When I was your age, look what I did. But you know what? It can also be effective to just, you know, tell them about your mistakes and say, you know what? I went there, and this is what happened to me. Learn from my mistake. And kids can learn from both of those things. And that's a way to redeem our mistakes. Verse 15, And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan... And the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. <gasps> you want to read, and the water opened up, and that, but there's this parenthetical statement, and I think that it's just the brilliance of the storyteller. He knows he's got us, and he's like, and guess what? I'm going to just make you wait. We read this. Now, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. It's actually an important point. This is not the dry time of the year when the Jordan River is at its smallest. It's the wet time of the year when the Jordan River is, in fact, raging. Of course, you have to wonder, why did God choose the rainy season to direct His people to cross the Jordan? Most likely, it's because it calls out, calls upon faith, and it also lets God display even more uh, dramatically His mighty power. The Jordan River today, by the way, is... Uh, flows far smaller, that's correct, than it did uh, back then because they erected all kinds of dams in the 19th century and the cubic feet has gone way down. I think it's 10 times less uh, cubic water rushing than it was back then. Verse 16, the waters coming down from above... The waters coming down from above stood... And rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan. All right. Upstream, uh, and, and nobody, we're not for sure where this all is. We think we know where Jericho was for sure. And it says that the people crossed right across from Jericho. Upstream, archaeologists think they know, and it's about 14 miles upstream. Adam, Zarathan. And so upstream, you know, 14 miles, the waters begin to stand up. So I, I imagine like God has put an invisible force field into the water, dammed it up, starts to pile up. And then that means that the water that from that, you know, as soon as the damming started, that water just kept flowing. It took a while, but eventually the last drop of water passed 
in front of the Israelites, and now they have dry land. I called my buddy Dan Krause, preacher, friend of mine. And this is one of his, I know this is one of his favorite passages. I'm like, Dan, I'm preaching your favorite passage, the, uh, the drying up of the Jordan River. He's like, I love that. I said, okay, so what do you tell people? And he said, oh, that God is working upstream. I'm like, oh, that's a good one. He's like, yeah, here they are. They're at the edge of the Jordan River. God's given them a mission. Uh, they want to get to the promised land, and yet right in front of them is this raging Jordan River. How's God going to you know, help me go do what he's asked me to do? How's this all going to work out? And unbeknownst to them, God's already working upstream. The, day, the waters are already piling up, and, and in just a little while, the last... The last few drops of that water are going to pass them by, and the ground will open up. Always trust, he said. Always trust that when, when you're trying to do what God has asked you to do, he is working upstream. He's going to move heaven and earth if, ha- if he has to, to, to help you do what he's called you to do. And don't forget that the promised land for the Christian represents a life free from uh, slavery to sin. It's a, it's a, it represents a life of walking with the Lord and a life where sin isn't master over you, right? And God has called us to that, and there are enemies in the land who desperately want to keep us enslaved and tangled to sin. And, but when we set out to, to do what is right and to overcome a sin, God will work mightily on our behalf to make it possible. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. And then it says, uh, And those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. So they had moved now from the edge of the Jordan into the middle of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Obviously, one of the reasons for this great miracle was to remove the obstacle uh, between the people and the promised land. And what happened? Uh, What happened once the people were all over? Then God instructs the, the, through Joshua, instructs the priests to come up out. And as soon as the priests exit, the waters begin to flow again. So it was the Ark of the Covenant touches the water, which is the God. And when, as soon as the Ark comes out of the river, the waters flow. It's the power of God that kept the waters at bay. Can't help but uh, think of Cortez the Spanish explorer to the New World back in the 1500s, and uh, he was concerned that his sailors would revolt and go home. And so what did he do? Burn the ships. And I think God just burned the ships on the Israelites, right? The waters start flowing. He's like, oh, now you can't retreat. <laughs> you can go one way, and that's into the promised land with faith, and I'll fight for you. There's no going back now. So chapter 4, Pastor James is going to preach on um, next week, but I, I want to note just a um, couple of things. Uh, first off, the tribe Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, if you remember last week, 
talked about how uh, they, their inheritance was on the east side of the Jordan, the Amorite territories. And Joshua said, your wives and children may remain on the east side, but your fighting men need to come with us and help the rest of the tribes conquer uh, the rest of the promised land. And so what we see is that those tribes were the vanguard. They, there were about 40,000 men dressed for war, and they went across first, and then they went out onto the plains in front of Jericho, and they, they mustered their armies. Uh, and that was very smart because the rest of the tribes are trying to get their wives and kids and livestock and goods across the river, and they would be vulnerable to attack. I mean, when you're attacking uh, an army, attacking them while they're trying to ford a river is very smart. So you just see this repeated over and over again in the Bible. God fights for us, and he says, I will drive out, but he expects us to fight too. Um, Taking your, in, your spiritual inheritance requires effort. Make every effort to add to your faith. Right? It's not passive. You won't grow spiritually being passive. It doesn't just come to you. God expects you to be involved. You, God fights for us. We have to fight too. And so you've got to read your Bible. You've got to pray. You've got to be uh, fellowshipping with other Christians. You've got... right. These disciplines, Christians throughout for hundreds and hundreds of years have identified spiritual disciplines as being primary means through which God forms us spiritually. You're not unique. You're not going to grow spiritually being passive. You must engage in the spiritual disciplines if you want to grow spiritually, and you do. I'm going to now turn your attention to the last part of chapter 4 because here we see a couple, of more, a couple more purposes for this great miracle. I'm going to start in verse 19 of chapter 4. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. By the way, that was the same day that the Israelites were instructed to keep the very first Passover in Egypt. So it's kind of like God started uh, freeing them from their slavery... And now, 40-plus years later, uh, he finally, he, he, he bookends it. They're now in uh, the Promised Land. They encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho, and those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? So next week... Pastor James is going to talk about the uh, taking of the stones out of the Jordan and erecting the memorial to uh, remember this great act. Verse 22, Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So there have been two kind of big water miracles. The first was when the people were coming out of Egypt and God uh, dried up the Red Sea or parted the Red Sea and here the stopping up of the Jordan. And Mo, uh, I'm sorry, Joshua envisions, or even God envisions, future generations coming and seeing the memorial and saying, what's that all about? And then you tell, well, this, this is a memorial 
to the fact that God once dried up the Jordan River. Our living God who was among us and fought for us. And then, and what does God expect will happen in the hearts of those kids when they hear that? God expects them to be um, adequately skeptical and full of doubt and not believe it and do their own thing. No, that was wrong. No, God expects, He wants these kids to believe and, and as a result, be full of faith themselves. Boy, we are so skeptical today of, of testimony evidence, right? Well, maybe if I see it, I'll believe it. If you see it and tell me, eh, well, and then if grandma and grandpa tell me, Ugh. and if it's somebody that's not even alive, eh, it never happened, right? But the Bible clearly tells us that we should believe uh, and live our lives based on sure testimony of God's acts in the past. And that's what that, uh, that memorial is all about. And it's all, also instructive to us, right? We are supposed to be the ones who are telling others about what God has done for us in the past. And the greatest act on our behalf was the sending of Jesus Christ to die in our place on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And then he burst forth from the grave in resurrection so that we too can know that we have uh, victory over sin and death, resurrection to come. So the people of God need to be telling others of what God has done. Otherwise, how are they going to know, right? How can people uh, believe unless they hear? And who in the world is going to tell them? If the people of God aren't telling them, who's going to tell them? Verse 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Here is kind of the ultimate purpose of this miracle. Why did God stop up the Jordan? Yes, to elevate Moses. Yes, so the people could get across. Yes, so his people would be encouraged. But, but he did this ultimately so that people would know how mighty he is and his people would fear him as a result. So that all the earth, all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And did the peoples uh, of the earth learn the, the might of God? Well, we read, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they'd crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Well, the people living in the promised land who heard about it, they knew it spelled doom for them because this mighty God had given their land over to the Israelites. But do you think God intended for the impact of this miracle to be limited to just that time? No. That's why he preserved this, this story for us in the Bible, so that we, thousands of years later, could hear about what God did at the Jordan and, and come to know, to know that God is mighty and that he fights for his people. And what God wants to do in your heart and my heart is to produce the fear of the Lord our God in us. And I know that that's, that's gotten uh, kind of a bad rep, 
But it, you know, in the Old Testament, fear of the Lord is kind of like the New Testament's believe. It represented the correct posture a person could have to God. And what does it mean to... Uh, and by the way, it's not just an Old Testament command. Peter, the Apostle Peter, commands us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, fear God. What does it mean to fear God? It means to take Him very, very seriously and live accordingly. God is mighty. He's not to be trifled with. Uh, and, and yet this mighty God who created the universe can be known personally, wants to be known personally, uh, loves us and has acted on our behalf in Jesus so that we, despite our sin, can relate to him. Our sins can be forgiven. He's, so he is a God to be feared, but he's not a, a God to be run away from. He's, to, he's a God to run toward in Jesus and only in Jesus. So I started by saying... If you were a, an Israelite living in the time of Joshua, your sense of reality would have been completely altered by this, by your witnessing this great display of God's power on your behalf. And here we are thousands of years later, but God, through faith and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, wants this to become experiential firsthand knowledge for us. Will we believe that God is our, our God is the living God. He's among us, and He is sure to drive out the enemies. Let's pray. God, we are encouraged by this reminder of your mighty power that you bend on behalf of your people. And Lord, we fear you. We want to fear you more. As the Bible portrays fear, a reverence, taking you very seriously, living accordingly, and, but not running away from you, running towards you in Jesus. Thank you for your word. We are, we are always just so corrected by it and inspired by it and encouraged by it. And we submit ourselves to it in Jesus' name. Amen.